So let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, where we'll be looking this morning. It is Palm Sunday. Um, originally, I had intended on preaching one of the traditional Palm Sunday texts, but then Monday happened and the tragedy in Nashville. And as I had conversations with a number of people in the church um, and in my own reflections of my own heart, I realized that, um, that this tragedy was affecting us in a, in a really significant way. Uh, there have obviously been... There, Unfortunately, far too many of these type of events around our country in the last number of years. But this one struck in a way I've not experienced and I think we've not experienced. And for several reasons, it's another PCA church. In our minds, we're going, this could be us. Uh, it's in Nashville. It's close enough that we go there all the time, right? Uh, we know people. We have friends and family who live in Nashville. We have friends and family who are part of that church. We have people in our church who used to be members of that church. There's just a lot of connections. And there was a weight and a brokenness and a sorrow over this tragedy that, uh, as I thought about, I decided to make an audible. And so Wednesday, I switched gears. Uh, and then as I thought about tragedy, I, I began to think about you, I begin to think about people in this congregation who've gone through and are going through tragedy, the tragedy of, of death of somebody close, uh, the tra tragedy of divorce, broken dreams, uncertain future, the tragedy of adult children who've cut off relationships. And, and I could just go on as I picture people's faces in this congregation of, of tragedy. And, and I, I wanted to wrestle with what do we do? How do we keep moving? How do we not lose hope when tragedy draws near? And so I wanted to look at Mark chapter 4 this morning in a passage from an event from Jesus' life to see what are the truths that we can lay hold of that will enable us to not lose hope and to keep living when tragedy draws near. So let's look at Mark chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 35 to 41. Let me ask you to stand as we hear God's word. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. Let's again look to him in prayer. Father, we ask now that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, open the eyes and the ears of our hearts. God, help us to hear your truth that we would be reminded of the wonder and the beauty of Jesus so that even in the worst moments of despair, we would be a people who do not lose hope. 
We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. When she looked ahead, Florence Chadwick saw nothing but a thick, dense wall of fog. Her body was frozen numb. She had been swimming for nearly 16 hours. Florence Chadwick, a few years previously, had become the first woman to successfully swim the English Channel in each direction. And now she was attempting to become the first woman to swim from Catalina Island off the coast of California back to the California mainland. It was July 4th, 1952. The water was like an ice bath. The fog was so thick that she could barely see the boats that were traveling alongside to provide support. Sharks were circling and had to be driven off by rifle fire. And she labored on in the ice cold sea hour after hour. In one of the support boats nearby, her mother and her trainer cried out words of encouragement. Keep swimming, keep moving, you're almost there. Don't stop, don't quit. And she never had until that moment. And she finally looked up and said, pull me out, pull me out, I can't go any further. A little bit later, as she was attempting to warm her body, she was speaking to some of the reporters, and she says, I'm not trying to make excuses, but if I could have just seen the land, I think I could have made it. Hear what she's saying there? She's, she was saying, it wasn't that I was desperately cold. It wasn't that I was fatigued and worn out. It was the fog. I couldn't see where I was going. And she quit. And here's the thing. She was a half mile from shore. So close. But she lost her way in the fog. Two months later, Florence Chadwick returned to Catalina Island to try again. In preparation, she had reminded herself over and over and over again of one truth. The land is there. Even though... The fog is thick, and I can't see it. The land is there. So she re-entered the water, and it was just as cold. The fog was still thick. The sharks were still circling, and she made it. Even though she struggled, she reminded herself of the truth. The land is there, and she made it. The first woman to cross from Catalina Island to the California coast. But not only that, she shattered the men's record by two hours. As she reminded herself of the truth, it's like she took a knife and cut a hole through the fog. And she did not lose hope, and she reached her goal. As I think about tragedy, I think the common experience for most of us who go through tragedy is it feels like a fog descends. It feels like suddenly... Everything closes in and you cannot see. You don't know up from down. You don't know left from right. You, you lose total sense of everything. And when the fog sets in, confusion, 
fear, pain. You simply give up. You lose heart. You shut your heart down to avoid the pain. And so what do we do? How do we keep pressing on? How do we not lose heart? Because here's the bad news. Tragedy's coming for all of us. It's just a matter of when. And so we need to be equipped to know what are the truths I can hold on to so that like Florence Chadwick, I can press through the fog and reach the goal. Not losing hope. So we want to look at this passage from Jesus' life where he and the disciples are on the sea and they were in the middle of the fog. They were in the middle of the storm. And there are truths from this passage that if we can lay hold of and we can remind ourselves of, if we can remember them, we will not lose hope and we can keep going. So let's take a look. First uh, truth is that we need to remind ourselves of what's true about God. What is true about God? So let me just give you the setting here. Uh, Jesus has been ministering and has decided he wants to, the, everything's just becoming too much. He needs to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee was known or is known for, uh, for storms just arising out of nowhere, for vicious storms and, and creating havoc. But if you remember, four of his disciples, Andrew, Peter, James, John, they were professional fishermen. Their entire life, they lived on the sea. This is, should have been no big deal for them. And yet a storm arose that even these men who were experienced fishermen, who were experienced with a life on the Sea of Galilee, were terrorized. This was not ordinary. And suddenly they're screaming, Jesus, help us. We're about to die. The boat's about to sink. Jesus, help. And as they cry out to Jesus, what does he do? He wakes up. And with a simple word, stop. And the wind stops. The sea turns to glass, and they are astonished. Because what has just been demonstrated in front of them by one word and by an act is that Jesus is powerful, that he has the power to stop the sea. And one of the things we have to realize that really helps picture this force is that in Ancient Middle Eastern thought the sea was a metaphor for chaos and evil. And so in the act of Jesus calming the sea, what is being communicated to the disciples, to the original readers of the Gospels and to us, is that Jesus has power over the chaos and the evil of our lives. He is powerful. Another thing that's being indicated by this is that when he calms the sea, one of the first things that would come to mind for the disciples and for the original readers is the parting of the Red Sea. There is no other historical event mentioned more often than the, in the Old Testament than the parting of the Red Sea when the people of Israel left 
Egypt for the Exodus. It was an incredible demonstration of power as God causes the sea to part, the land to dry out so they can cross over, and then at the exact right time for the sea to come back together and demolish the army of Egypt. And so as they see Jesus calming the sea, they call to mind God conquering the sea as well. And then they realize, who is this standing in front of us? This is God himself. They are reminded that the one right there with them is the all-powerful God who's created the world. The first truth about God we need to lay hold of is he's all-powerful. The second truth is he's right there with them. Jesus didn't tell them to get in the boat and go by themselves. He rode in the boat with them. He experienced every rocking of the waves. He experienced the water, the splashing. He experienced all of it. You and I are never alone when we face trials and tragedies. Jesus is always with us. He was in the boat. But more than just experiencing this tragedy with them, he went through the ultimate storm for us. Where was Jesus heading when he was in this boat? Not just to the other side of the sea, but every event in his life was one step closer to this coming Friday. It was one step closer to the cross. Jesus was aiming for the cross where he would endure all of God's anger and wrath towards our sin so that we would never experience the anger and wrath of sin. Jesus endured God turning his face away so that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced what it meant to be truly alone so that you and I will never be alone. You and I can take hope that the all-powerful God of the universe is with us in the storm. He will never abandon you the way he was left alone at the cross. We can live with confidence knowing that the one who weathered the storm will never abandon us in the storm. But then there was another truth. It's not just simply enough to know that he's powerful. It's not enough to know that he's with us. But does he care? Do we matter? And you hear the disciples express that that question. Master, do you care? Teacher, do you care? And when you are in the midst of Tragedy, when you're in the midst of of trials, isn't that the question that comes to mind? God, do you care about me? Do you care about me? 
And Jesus, by his response, shows them, I care. I mean, he immediately stepped forward and calmed the sea. Why? Because he cared. Do we wonder, does Jesus care? He was with them in the storm. He left his father's throne above. Why? Because he cared. He endured all the hardships of this world. Why? Because he cared. He rode with them in the boat because he cared. He went to the cross because he cared. He cares about you. And so this is a truth that we can lay hold of and remind ourselves of, that we can remember as we walk through hardship. He's powerful. He's present. And he cares. A number of years ago, probably actually 25 years ago, I read an article in World Magazine by a woman named Andre Sue. Um, she uh, was just beginning writing a monthly column uh, for World Magazine. And in that particular column, she was writing it two months after her husband had died and left her with four small children. And she's describing her experience of feeling engulfed by the fog, and then remembering what her pastor would tell her to do as the fog begins to set in. And she, she made a comment. Her husband was an author and a writer, and she said, this is the first scribbling of mine that will not fall under your discerning eye. She's writing this article and she said, this is the first time I've ever written. And it's not fallen under your eye. And you get the picture that she's sitting there writing. And as she writes it, her habit, what she normally do, is say, young, come take a look. But then she realized, young wasn't there. That really connects with me. When I was 25, my father died at age 47, and, you know, there's a fog that sets in when there's tragedy. And a few days after that, my mom had given me my dad's car, and my uncle came to me and said, hey, I'll buy your old car um, for, for my son. How much do you want for it? And I said, I don't know. What are you thinking? And he threw out a figure, and I said, let me go ask. There's no going to ask, Right? I've never made a significant decision in my life without asking. And it's as if a fox said, and all I could do is turn, turn around and walk away. What do you do when the fog sets in? Uh, Andre Sue goes on and writes that when the fog would set in for her, she would remember what her pastor would tell her. She said, Reverend Men says that when I feel myself sinking, I must start from the beginning. What is true, what is real? And that's where you and I need to start when we're in the midst of tragedy, when we're in the midst of suffering, when we're in the midst of trials. What is true? And here's what's true. Jesus is with us. Jesus is powerful. And Jesus cares. When you and I can lay hold of those truths and we can remember them even in the midst 
of the thickest fog. It's as if we're taking out a knife and we're carving a hole so that the light gets in and we don't lose hope. We can go on. But we don't stop right there. We go on to the next truth that we remind ourselves of. We need to remind ourselves of what's true about God's ways. What are God's ways in the world? What are God's ways in the world? Very simply, God's ways in the world is he makes beauty out of ashes. He makes beauty out of ashes. He takes the storms, he takes the tragedies of our lives, and he makes good things. So how does he do that? Listen, as these guys got in the boat with Jesus, remember, four of them at least are professional fishermen. Their entire life from childhood has been life in a boat. Well, they're moving from the land to the boat, and they look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you're on our territory. Now, you go to the back of the boat, lay down and take you a nap. We got it under control. We got it under control. Just, we don't need you right now, Jesus. Well, they found out they did need Jesus. It was the worst storm they had ever imagined. And suddenly they're screaming, we're not in control. Jesus, we need you. And that's one of the things God does through storms. He does through our tragedies and our hardships is he reaches out and he grabs us. He says, I want you to live a life of absolute dependence upon me. You need me. But listen, it's not just in the worst tragedies of our life that we need Jesus. We need Jesus all the time as we sing earlier. I need thee every hour, every minute, every second, every moment. We're in control of nothing. He wants us deeply dependent upon him. And yet we live most of our life except when something terrible happens thinking we're in control. I mean, how many of us drive from Birmingham to Atlanta and think nothing of it? We just get in the car and go, right? Because it's totally controllable. Well, it wasn't for Sue this week. She gets in her car to drive from Atlanta to Birmingham and she doesn't make it. Well, she made it. I, I said that in the first service and people were, is Sue okay? No, Sue's fine. She's right here. Sue's vehicle, not so much. But she got, this, instead of a three-hour trip, it was a multi-day journey experiencing beautiful Bremen, Georgia. We're not in control even of a simple trip from Birmingham to Atlanta, Right? God wants us to open our eyes to the fact that we're out of control, but he's in complete control. And when we lean into that and we live a life of dependence, suddenly we find great hope for whatever we face. He is making us to be a people who are dependent upon him. And then... There's a second point of what God uses tragedies for. He uses them to make us love and enjoy him more. The disciples had been with Jesus really just for a few months at this time. They had seen quite a bit, 
They've seen the baptism and they've heard the voice of God speaking from heaven. They've seen multiple miracles. They've heard Jesus teaching. But suddenly this event happens. And they are overwhelmed by who Jesus is. Their final words were, who then is this? I mean, they were blown away. They were in the presence of God himself. But you've got to wonder, what did this do for their love, their connection to Jesus? It was deepened immensely. Suddenly they were no longer strangers, but they were men who had experienced the deepest near catastrophe and had been delivered by Jesus and their love for him exploded. And this is what God does through tragedy. That's what he does through hardships. Is he draws us close. That as we realize we're not in control and we deepen our grip on him as he deepens his grip on us. And we lessen our independence and heighten our dependence. We fall in love with him more and more. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, was imprisoned for months on end in the Tower of London in the 1600s. Just think about the Tower of London, 1600s, absolutely dirty, filthy, rotten, spoiled food, nasty water, bugs, rats, you name it. It was the worst experience possible, and he went months without seeing his family. And yet, Bunyan wrote these words, in times of affliction, we commonly meet with the sweetest experiences of the love of God. We commonly meet with the experiences, the sweetest experiences of the love of God. Through hardship, God is drawing our hearts close to him so that we would experience his love more deeply. And then there's a third thing that God does through trials, and that is he is building his church. These guys entered this boat as just a bunch of men from different walks of Jewish life. Some of them knew each other before, some didn't. They'd just been pulled together. I guarantee they came out of that boat and they were a team. God was building his church. They had such an experience that they left arm in arm together. And isn't that what God does when we go through hard and difficult things with other people? He unites us and builds us and binds us together. I can remember probably about 25 years ago, as a church, we were in this phase where we were growing incredibly fast. We, were, we went probably from 400, we just moved into this building, went from you know, probably 400, 450 members to 800, 900, and literally about a year or so, you know, 35, 40 people a month joining the church. So suddenly we had a bunch of people who just, from all over the place, and didn't know each other super well. And then a tragedy happened. Some of you have been around long enough and you remember this, but a woman in our church was in a horrible car accident. She was in a coma for over a month. I have never experienced prayer of a church like we experienced 
we as a church have never experienced a depth of love and care and serving and taking care of one another like we experienced. And now looking back with a 25-year look back, I think about who we were as a church undergoing such rapid growth. And in just a matter of a month, God created a unity and a foundation in this church that I think is why we are what we are today. God was building something. God takes the hard things in this world and he builds his church. In her article, Andre Sue writes, God's economy is strange. I would never remove a creature, speaking of her husband, I would never remove a creature so fine, so before the time. There's a giant hole in the universe now. But I'm a catechized lady and I know it is he who fills the shuttle, who plies the loom, and has a billion strands to weave into his tapestry. She is saying that through the hard things of life, God is weaving and making this beautiful tapestry. But often, as we're in the middle of the storm, we're on the backside of the tapestry. And we see the knots, we see the strings hanging out. And it's not until maybe 25 years later that we're able to step around to the other side and see the beautiful thing that God is doing. She goes on and she makes reference to the story of Rachel and Leah in the Bible. If you remember Rachel and Leah, they're Jacob's two wives. Problematic right there. And they're competing for his love. And they do it by having more children. And they think, if I can have one more child, then he'll love me and not her. That's a dysfunctional family. And she says, here are Rachel and Leah on one level, conniving and competing for Jacob's love. And when the smoke clears, here is God on another level. And the 12 tribes of Israel standing all in a row, he's building his kingdom. And so as we face our trials, we look and we say, what is God doing? What's he weaving? Sometimes we can't say it. We can't see it. But we can know for certain, just as Florence Chadwick knew for certain the land was there, that God is at work. He's working to cause us to love him more, to need him more. He's building his church. Shortly after that car accident, a number of us were out with Jeff one night talking to him. And he said, what I've gone through, I wouldn't wish on anyone. It's horrible. I hope never, I hope no one ever experiences this. But I've gained something that I wouldn't trade for anything. He had gained a deeper love for Jesus. He had seen what God was doing in his church and what the church had done for him. He said, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I don't wish anybody would experience this, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I've been in ministry for 35 years. 
And I could point to countless, countless stories like this of men and women who've undergone incredible pain and hardship. And over and over again, I've heard people say, I hope no one experiences this like me, but I've gained something so beautiful. If we can lay hold of that truth, that God's ways in this world are that he as the powerful, present, caring Jesus is making beauty out of our ashes. We can keep swimming even in the midst of the fog because we know there's something out there that's better. And then finally, we need to remind ourselves of what is true about God's expectations. What does he want from us? I mean, there are two horrible, horrible, erroneous ways of thinking that often pop up in the church. The first one is that if we just have enough faith, everything will work. And that if something goes wrong in our life, then it must be our fault because we didn't have enough faith. And this passage dispels that. As the disciples cry out to Jesus, he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, he's not saying they don't have zero faith. Because they obviously had enough faith in the midst of the storm to say, Jesus, help! But he's saying, you've been around me. You've seen what I can do. Don't you have faith to know I've got this under control and you can trust that good will happen? He's pointing out to us that the disciples' faith wasn't perfect, but it was present as a small, imperfect seed. And that is all God wants from us. We don't have to have a perfect faith. We just have to have a little faith. If we have a little faith, Jesus answers. So as you go through trial, as you go through tribulation, as you go through hardship, it's just going to be natural that our faith is going to waver, that we feel like our faith is falling. But our confidence is not in the greatness of our faith. Our confidence is in the greatness of Jesus. So if you have a little faith, that's all you need. That's all he expects. And then a second thing is he wants us to be honest. It's in our honesty that God comes and meets us. See, the second erroneous thing about the Christian life sometimes you hear, well, we ought to rejoice always. Whatever happens, we're happy. I fell down and I broke my leg. Praise the Lord, this is good. No, it's not. My daughter got ran over a car. Praise the Lord, everything's wonderful. No, it's not. These guys were afraid and they were terrified and they were screaming like crazy. And that's what he wants us to do. It's express what are you feeling. He's big enough to take it. I mean, just read the Psalms. They're full of David and the other psalmists crying out with pain and agony and doubt. 
So as you walk through hard things, it's okay to be honest, to express it to God. Honesty is more important to God than your niceness. Be honest with God. Every one of us will experience the trials and tribulations of everyday life, and every one of us at some point will probably experience tragedy. But if we can lay hold of these truths, the truth about God that He's powerful, He's present, and He cares more than we can imagine. And if we can remember, what's He doing? He's creating beauty out of ashes. And we free ourselves to simply be honest and cling to Him with whatever little faith we have. He will renew our hope and we can keep moving. Let's pray. Father, we, we need you. This is a world where evil is constantly, I mean, it's circling us like the sharks were circling Florence Chadwick. And hard things will come. But God, you're bigger and you're better so help us cling to you. God, enable us to remind ourselves of these truths so that our lives will be filled with the confidence and hope and joy of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and receive our benediction, the blessing of God as you go. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's close.